if you've got a um, Bible handy, we're going to um, be focusing on uh, Zechariah this evening, Zechariah chapter 6, so if you'd like to turn to that. Um, it will appear on the screen, so if you haven't got a Bible, um, don't worry. You'll be able to follow things there, but you might want to... We will flick, flick around as well a little bit, so it'd be handy to have one, have one available. Well, as we come to God's Word, let's, let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you for your Word. We do thank you that there is so much in there that um, we can read, and um, as we read, we can see the great message of Jesus Christ, the one who brings us salvation. But Lord, we know that you've used different uh, authors in different ways. You've used different types of writing. And we do pray this evening as we focus on this particular passage and this type of writing uh, from one of the prophets. Uh, we do pray this wouldn't be uh, just an academic exercise, but this would be, be something which really warms our hearts, which brings us closer to you and helps us to trust in you more and more each day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you were here last week, but if you were and um, you're enjoying this sort of approach, um, uh, can I just uh, recommend a particular website you might like to go to, which is the Desiring God website, um, where John Piper, some of you will know him, um, has a series of little videos, little videos, sort of 10-minute videos, um, which do the same sort of thing. Um, technology he uses is probably a bit more advanced than we're using, um, but it's a great way of just sort of seeing how um, we get into a text. Uh, the way he describes of what he's doing is actually comparing it with a meal. If you invite some of your friends around for a meal and um, you sit them down, um, preaching is like presenting them with this uh, meal ready to eat. Um, what we're doing this evening is more like inviting somebody into the kitchen and seeing how you prepare the meal, how you get it all together before actually then presenting it. So it's the rough and ready um, business of um, going through a passage and trying to get to grips with it. Well, we're looking at different types of uh, writing each week, and uh, last week we looked at poetry and the Psalms, and this week we're looking at prophecy, which is, um, you know, is a huge subject, so we can't do justice to it in just the next uh, half an hour or so, but um, hopefully we're going to be a flavor of um, prophetic writing and uh, make you want to, to read more from the different prophets. Just a bit of introduction, uh, first of all, though, um, the prophets... Um, were basically God's messengers. And uh, there were different types of prophets in the Bible. Uh, some, uh, mess- some of their messages weren't recorded in the Bible. So we have people like Nathan, Elijah, Elisha. Uh, but then we have those who um, have uh, books named after them. And those are the last 17 books of the Old Testament. And we have the five major prophets, Isaiah to Daniel. Major, not because they're any more important, but simply because... The books are bigger and longer. Um, and the 12 um, minor prophets from Hosea to, to Malachi. When people um, think about prophecy, I don't know what you think about when you think of prophecy. I guess for a lot of people it's um, all about the future. Because let's face it, we're often quite obsessed with what's going to happen in the future. Maybe to us personally, maybe to us as a church, um, maybe to us as, as God's people. And how will that, will that affect us? So just a couple of things to um, clarify about the Old Testament prophets and um, why they're still relevant for us today um, before we look at this uh, specific passage from, from Zechariah. And firstly, they're not um, simply predictions of the future, but 
they're often calls to repent. Um, they're intended to cause the people to, to, to see their sin and to turn from it. Um, likewise, the blessings in prophecies are often conditional on the people turning away from their, their rebelliousness. And that's just as relevant for us today as it was for them then. You know, as we read the warnings about the behavior of God's people, um, we're encouraged to look at our own lives and see where we may have got it wrong. And many of the things the prophets said to the people then um, are just as relevant for us today, whether it's about half-hearted worship, uh, injustice, infidelity, etc., etc. So they're often calls to repent. Um, also, prophecies will often contain multiple levels of fulfillment. Uh, it's the immediate, uh, the future, and the, um, the far future. One helpful way of looking at this is a photo here from a little few years ago now. Um, us and the, uh, the three boys, a little bit different these days. Um, it's a time when we enter Scotland. And uh, as you can see in that picture, there are some mountain peaks in the background. Um, here, 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 here. And uh, as you climb, you're getting closer and closer. And you think you're getting to the, the summit. But obviously when you get there, you realize there's still another um, summit to get to. So... Um, as things start out nice and some summary, we get um, to the top, and uh, those shorts don't necessarily seem such a good idea now. Um, these are responsible parents. Uh, but you see there's another summit behind. We thought we got to the top, but there's another summit behind. And that's like prophecy. You see it fulfilled in the immediate term, but then there's another level of fulfillment in the, in the future. And the advantage of where we sit in history is that we can look back at that immediate level that's been fulfilled already, that's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as well as looking ahead to it being fulfilled again when Jesus Christ comes again. And what, the reason why that's helpful for us is it gives us confidence in God's power, gives us confidence in God's faithfulness, that if he has already fulfilled prophecy, he will re- fulfill it again in the future. He will keep his promises. Well, let's have a look at um, Zechariah um, then. Just a few words again by introduction to, to Zechariah. Uh, uh, first part of the book was written about 520 BC, about 70 years after the people of Israel began to return from exile from Babylon. So they're coming back to, to their homeland. Um, and those first chapters describe the, the eight visions that um, Zechariah received to do with the immediate future of Jerusalem and its temple, which was in urgent need of um, being rebuilt. It's an encouraging message of a city attracting many nations because of uh, God's presence, but also a warning that it needed to become a city of truth and righteousness if it was to enjoy God's blessings. second half of the book um, was uh, written some 40 years later and is often quoted in the New Testament um, in relation to the coming of Jesus. It deals with the, the day of the Lord, but also contains warnings about nations attacking Jerusalem and um, leadership falling into the wrong hands. Now, the passage we're looking at this evening, chapter 6, um, comes in the first part after the eight visions, um, and almost as a bit of a climax to them. So let's, uh, let's read it through and get a feel from it. I'm going to read from verse 9 to verse 15, and we'll have it on the screen. The word of the Lord came to me, Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who arrived from Babylon. 
Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Josadak. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Josiah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Well, I'm not sure how much of that meant anything to you, so uh, let's try and... Uh, uh, work through it together, shall we? And the first thing we, um, we're told is the word of the Lord came to me. As we said, um, the prophets were God's messengers. They told the people what God wanted them to hear. These are not just wise words from a religious guy, but the words of God himself. And they carry his authority. The messages that the, the prophets had to deliver weren't always easy um, to do so. There are sometimes quite tough words, but they've been called to deliver these messages. Just a comment on the name of, uh, of God here. When you see um, God referred to as the Lord in, in capitals, um, this is a personal name for God. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh, um, which means I am who I am. Um, the name often used to emphasize God's covenant relationship with his people, his personal name. So what's the instruction that Zechariah has um, been given there? Well, there are basically five commands here. Take silver and gold from the exiles. Um, go the same day to the house of Josiah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown. Set it on the head of the high priest and tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says five commands, and we'll look at the significance of them in a minute. Also, got a lot of names here, haven't we? Um, and names um, often significant. Um, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah. Um, what do we know about them? Well, we know they've come from Babylon, um, where Israel had been in exile. Whether they brought silver and gold for a particular purpose, we don't know, but uh, maybe they brought it as a free will offering. Um, we've got Josiah, son of Zephaniah, presumably a, a silversmith and a goldsmith because he's been called to, to make the crown. Then um, we've got um, Joshua, the, uh, the high priest. And um, Joshua's an important name because Joshua and Jesus in, in Greek are the same name. Joshua meaning saviour. Now silver and um, gold convey wealth, they convey um, majesty, authority. And that's reinforced by the fact that they're to be used to make a crown, a symbol of a royal authority. But as we come on to the command um, here, which is um, take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Josadak. 
Now, you see, I put a question mark in there. Anybody know why that is such a startling thing to actually do? This command that um, uh, Zechariah has been given, why is that such a startling thing to do? Anybody got any idea there? The high priest wasn't a king. Exactly, exactly that. And throughout Israel's history, the role of priest came from the tribe of Levi. The role of king came from the tribe of Judah. And these roles were not meant to be performed by the same person. These were two very separate roles. And so the instruction would have come across as shocking. Um, which must have made him think, actually there's something more to this. Maybe this is some sort of symbolic thing that he's been asked to do here. Because prophets are often asked to do quite strange symbolic things. Um, when Isaiah prophesied against Egypt, um, he stripped naked to show what would happen to the Egyptians when they would be taken captive by Assyria. Uh, or Jeremiah smashed a clay pot to show the people of Jerusalem what would happen to that city. Well, to find out what the, the crowning symbolizes, let's have a look at the, the message that goes with it. And notice this is a message from uh, the Lord Almighty. This is the message. Here is the man, literally, behold the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. His name is the, the branch. Now, when you get a clear sort of symbolic name um, given to someone like this, it's worth doing a bit of um, extra um, research to find out where else might that um, uh, have been used. And if we turn back, if you've got your Bibles handy, turn back to chapter 3, verse 8. And um, we find the same name, branch, used here. I think I might have a... Here we go, it's on the screen as well. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See, the stone I've set in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So here we're told that this act is symbolic of things to come. So by putting the crown on the head of a priest... Zechariah is not doing anything against God's commands. Actually, he's fulfilling um, what he's, he's been asked to do. He's pointing to something or someone, someone else. Okay, so something's going to happen, and um, this name Branch is significant. Uh, but where else do we read of Branch? I think some of you may re- recall a passage in Isaiah somewhere where Branch came up, something to do with stumps. Um, remember that one? Um, and Jesse, let's have a look at it. Um, this is how, this is also, if you, by the way, if you use Bible Gateway, you can go onto the internet, you get access to Bible Gateway, it's totally free, and um, you can type in words. So you can type in branch, and it will come up with every reference in the Bible to the word branch. So it's a great way of um, preparing sermons. Um, so um, when we come up with it, there's lots of references that are not so helpful, but um, there's a particular reference which is helpful. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch. He's very helpfully given us branch in capital B to, to make us clear that this is something significant. Will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now that branch 
that Zechariah is talking about. It's the same branch that Isaiah was talking about 200 years before. Now, from where we stand, it's pretty clear that um, uh, the person being talked about is Jesus. He's a servant figure. He's the Messiah, the one who will be anointed by the Spirit, the one who will remove the sin of the land in a single day. Now, the Isaiah passage tells us a little bit more about him. He'll grow out of a stump, the stump of Jesse, a descendant of David. So out of something that um, was pretty dead, like Israel, will grow something that will be fruitful. And so the the sense of hope that that sort of prophecy conveys, that uh, for those people then, it's not all doom and gloom. There is hope um, that comes from the branch. So if Jesus is um, the branch, what do we learn about him? Let's go back to um, uh, our passage. And uh, we've heard, these are the references from Zechariah and Isaiah. What else do we learn about him? Was he, we're told in verse 13, who will build the temple of the Lord, who will be clothed with majesty, will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. So the language is all about royalty again, um, to be clothed with majesty, will sit and rule on his throne. It's no figurehead position. This is someone who, by their very nature, demonstrates power and authority. Remember when Jesus came to earth, he came in a very humble way, Yet he still had authority. And despite Jesus' humble appearance, he was clothed with majesty. His demeanor, his speech, his wisdom was that of a king. The splendor of the king, as we sang earlier. But if this is Jesus, then, who the prophet is talking about, why is he talking in the future tense? If Jesus is already king, why are we told that um, you know, he will build the temple, he will be clothed with majesty, he will sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne. Why why is it all in the future? Surely Jesus is already king, even at this stage. Well, we know that Jesus, um, being God, already had some divine glory before the world began. And we said before that a priest couldn't take on a kingly role. So how is Jesus able to be both priest and and king, this is the question that the passage throws up, isn't it? As we read through this, these are the sort of questions that um, will come to mind as we, we work on it. Um, here's the connection. How do these two go together, throne and priest? Well, this is a new kingship that is being combined with priesthood. And it appears that he can only have his kingship, he can only be um, given the, the crown when... He's completed his, completed his priestly mission. We're told that Jesus in the New Testament gave up his heavenly crown. He humbled himself for a while. He became a man. Before he was crowned, he had to become a priest. So what, what's that all about? How, how did Jesus become a priest? Well, a priest is basically somebody who intercedes between the people and God. In the Old Testament, the priest then performed sacrifices so that people could approach God. Jesus' sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice in which he offered his own body, his own life, to take the punishment for our sins so that we could be made right with God. So here's the reason why we don't need priests anymore. We have direct access now to God the Father through Jesus. We don't need to go through any other human beings. 
And it's only after Jesus completes that work that he's able to take up his kingly crown again. As it says in the Hebrews, uh, after he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. On Hebrews 2, we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. The work of the Old Testament priests was never finished. They had to keep doing those sacrifices time and time again, day after day, year after year. But for Jesus, it was a one complete sacrifice. So the reason there is no tension between these two roles of, of priest and king for Jesus, and it says here that um, there will be harmony between the two, is that he's reconciled heaven and earth. He's brought peace between God and humankind. And that is a big message. That is a big message from this passage. And as we, that strikes us, it's worth just sort of stopping and just meditating on that for a moment. What does it um, mean for Jesus to be a priest? What does that mean for me? How have I benefited from that? And what does that mean for me today? The fact that actually he can deal with my sins. You know, he's the only one who can make me right with God. And that means accepting that sacrifice for me. But of course, you can't accept Jesus as saviour and have your sins forgiven without accepting him as king as well. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So to accept him as your king is to acknowledge the authority he already has. And that means not living by your own authority, giving up your own authority over your life, and submitting to, to him. Whilst many... People have, uh, in this country, an attitude of uh, sort of ambivalence towards the Queen. You can't have an attitude of ambivalence towards Jesus. He is the true King. Well, let's come on to the second uh, thing that Jesus is going to do. Because we're also told um, he will build the temple of the Lord. Again, why is this um, symbolic and not to do with the physical building of the temple well firstly because the the rebuilding of the temple um, was already underway have a look at chapter 4 verse 9 there we're told the the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple his hands will also complete it then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you so that is already happening so this is another temple he's obviously talking about And in Isaiah also we're told about a different temple. We're told in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. So what is this temple about then if it's not the actual physical building? Well, again, we're sitting in a very privileged position because we can look back and see from the vantage of the New Testament what this temple is. And what we see in the New Testament is that this temple symbolizes the presence of God with his people. God wasn't um, uh, only physically present in the temple. Obviously, God is spirit. He is everywhere. But the the temple symbolized God's presence with his people in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, uh, God's presence with his people is symbolized through Jesus Christ and his spirit. We're told that... um, uh, that with Jesus, um, his temple, his body, 
was the temple. Jesus talked about the temple being destroyed and after three days being raised again. And we're told in John, John 2, but the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. So the temple is Jesus' body. The temple is also the spirit. After Jesus ascends to heaven, um, his presence is maintained with his people through the, the spirit. We heard about that this morning in Acts. Peter quoted in, in Acts 2, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, he writes, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? That's an amazing thought, isn't it? To think that we are God's temple because God's spirit lives in us. That really should make us think, what do we do with our bodies? They're not there for abusing. Do we honor God with our bodies? But the fact that we are the temple is the reason why Zechariah says, those who are far away, in verse 15 there, will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. How is the temple of the Lord built? Well, by people becoming Christians, having the Spirit dwell in them. People who are far away. And this is not just um, a reference to the Gentile nations, to the non-Jews. It's those who are far away from God spiritually. Paul writes in Ephesians, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we're present with God, with Jesus, through the Spirit. And finally, we'll be present with him. And here comes a third level of prophecy in the new heaven and the new earth. That is when we will be in the physical presence of Jesus. We will see God face to face. And so then there will be no longer any need for a symbol. And that's why John writes in Revelation, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Well, let's bring all this um, together then. Um, these are amazing promises that we've been looking at, aren't they? Uh, that in one person, the roles of king and priest are combined. That this person would build the temple of the Lord, and many who are far away will come and help build that temple. And the most amazing thing is that we've seen that promise fulfilled. We've seen people come to faith and the Spirit dwell in them. We've accepted Jesus as our King and had the Spirit come and live in us. We ourselves are part of that temple and we know what a privilege and a joy that is. And to read this and know that it is true should give us an amazing trust, a great confidence uh, in the God who made this promise. And who also promised that one day we will see him face to face in the final fulfillment of that prophecy. So I think it'd be good just to, as we did last week, just to, to pray and thank God, just praise God for those amazing promise, prophecies um, that um, they have been fulfilled already in Jesus Christ and they will be fulfilled when he comes again and takes us to be with him. So why don't we um, just, um, uh, with the small groups around us, um, just praise God for these things. I'll leave the, the slide up on the screen and... Um, just praise God for something in there which has struck you. Praise God for Jesus. Uh, spend a time praying together. And also just um, bring to him some of our, our prayer requests. Remember what we said, Jesus is our priest. He's the one who intercedes between us and the Father. 
He's the one we pray to. And he takes those requests. And the Father listens to them because of Jesus. So let's spend some time in prayer now, just small groups around where you are.